0: And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 192, aka season three, episode 12, uh, coming at you podcast only this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich and, uh, doing the show solo because MC is out, um, doing his own thing for the days and we tried to get a special guest to come in, but technical difficulties prevented that. Uh, so you know what that means. Another rousing edition of Richie Rich reads the news, um, and it's been a few weeks because we we skipped Thanksgiving week because I was out of town uh, doing some family things. So uh, I've got a handful of articles that we you know didn't get to the the last time. Um, so let's just get into those and see what happens. So headlines: A Hawaii man who suffered heart attack during missile false alarm Sue state. A headline. <clears throat> When the nanny state actually tries to nanny. Headline. How government became the chief violator of property rights. Headline. uh, Julian Assange deserves a medal of freedom, not a secret indictment. Headline. Philly police union sues over attempts to keep bad cops off the stand. Headline. Passengers are forced to chip in to pay for repairs to their Boeing 787 before it takes off from Beijing to Poland. Headline. Uh, Innocent grandma jailed for months because cops mistook cotton candy for meth. Headline, healthcare aid America. Headline, Canada's marijuana legalization is tainted by big government's grasp on sales. And finally, oh, that's it. All right, from the top. Hawaii man who suffered heart attack during missile false alarm sues state. Uh, both plaintiffs believed this message to be true and were extremely frightened and thought they were going to die, the lawsuit says. Uh, I'm, I, before I get into the article, the reason I bring this up is is twofold. Number one, I was there uh, when it happened, so I was hoping, you know, that someone would turn this into like a class action <laughs> type of lawsuit, uh, that I can participate. Um, and apparently, uh, after posting this particular article, a friend of mine uh, messaged me on Facebook, um, and said, I actually know the attorney and it's true. I'm like, uh, the, the attorney who, uh, helped file the lawsuit is close friends with M, uh, n- another part-time co-host from the show. So it was, it's, it's, interesting to see how this plays out, uh, into the article. A Hawaii man claims the false ballistic missile l- earlier this year caused him to suffer a heart attack, according to a lawsuit filed on Tuesday. Uh, The botched alert was sent to cell phones on January 13th, claiming a missile was headed towards Hawaii, causing mass panic. It took the state 38 minutes to correct its mistake. James Sean Shields and Brenda Rochelle, who are both listed as plaintiffs in the complaint, were living in the Hawaii Kai neighborhood of Honolulu, Hawaii in January when they got the alert that read, Ballistic Missile Threat Inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. The couple was on their way to the sandy beach area of Oahu and decided that if they were going to die, it should be together on the beach, according to the complaint. Both plaintiffs believed this message to be true and were extremely frightened and thought they were going to die, the complaint reads. Uh, Rachel's son, a member of the Hawaii Army National Guard, also called the couple to tell them he believed the alert to be real. At approximately 8.15 a.m. local time, the couple reached the beach and began calling loved ones. It was around this time Shields began to feel a severe and painful burning in his chest area, the complaint says. Then, about 9.30 a.m., the couple arrived at Straub Medical Center where Shields went into cardiac arrest and had to receive life-saving CPR, defibrillation, and later surgery, according to the complaint. As the couple went through the medical ordeal, they were unaware a second alert had been sent by the state's emergency management agency stating that the first alert had been a false alarm. Uh, The suit names State of Hawaii's Vern T. Miyagi, the former administrator of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, 10 unnamed employees of the State of Hawaii, 10 John Doe's, and 10 Doe entities as defendants. Uh, Shields and Rochelle's attorney did not immediately return a request for comment. Uh, The suit comes just days after the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General recommended changes to the nation's emergency alert system in light of the mistakes made with the Hawaii False Missile Alert. Uh, The agency issued the report after U.S. Senator Macy Hirono asked it to examine the Federal Emergency Management Agency's role in the false missile alert. Multiple investigations blamed the alert on human error and inadequate management safeguards factors outside of FEMA's purview. Like I said, I don't really have much more to add to this other than who really loses uh, if this couple wins the lawsuit. Like what, you know, should they win? Right. And well first first of all, it should be a class action (laughs) suit. This is the I guess this is the main point I'm trying to get it. It's it should be a class action suit um because everyone with a cell phone on the in the state got the notification. Right. And so we 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 and I, I can use the collective we because I was a part of that, we all uh were impacted at varying degrees uh by the alert. Um personally, I didn't panic. Uh, I didn't worry. Um, I didn't do anything out of the ordinary because by the time I got the alert and woke up and, you know, checked the news to see what was really going on, um, the, the second alert came in and it was over. Um, but you know, I've, I've had, I have friends who, you know, like this gentleman panicked, um, feared for their lives. Um, and I have, you know, and I have family members that did the same, right? You know? So we, the collective we, were all impacted to some degree um, by this error. Uh, are we all entitled to compensation because of mismanagement uh, by state employees? Well, we got to see where this lawsuit goes. Um, but if 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 this lawsuit goes through, then should we all then file a claim for the same thing, regardless of of what sort of uh, medical impact it had? Because you know, it, we we all may not have had heart attacks, uh, but a claim could be made that we all suffered um, some sort of damage in some way. And if that's the case, then how how does the state um, pay back the entire citizenry, uh, for lack of a better term, for that for that sort of damage? Right? How does how does the state make good um, to to all of us who were impacted by that false alert? And if they, if it's financial damages, where is that money gonna come from? Right? How does how does the state then get the money to pay back uh, every single citizen um, of the state aside from some sort of, you know, tax rebate? Like who who would end up paying, you know, if, if this if a class action lawsuit if this were changed to a class action lawsuit and then and then won? I guess that that was the my main question. Uh, when reading this article is, you know, how to, just like every other, you know, bad police, bad cop story where, you know, the citizen sues and the police department has to pay what's, it's it's one person with the windfall um, at the expense of all the other, you know, tax cattle um, in that geographic area. But what happens when everyone, you know, is a victim uh, by the state? How does the state make good? Should some court uh, decide that the some state members were at fault? Like I'm I'd be curious, I'm personally curious to see how this plays out. Um, just because a, a victory could, could set up more lawsuits like this uh, going forward. And then, like I said, at some point, just make it a class action deal and, you know, shut the state down and give everyone their money back, I guess. I don't know. Who knows? We'll see. Moving on. Uh, when the nanny state actually tries to nanny. Uh, this is not just about kids, but the adults they will become. Uh, Anytime you hear the words, for the safety of our precious children, grab your little ones and run. Someone who thinks he cares more about your kids than you do is about to make you grovel. If he's from the government, run faster. Chicago mom, Kim Brooks, learned that lesson a few years back when she was hurrying to get everything ready for a plane trip home from visiting her parents in Virginia. Brooks knew that if her son didn't have a set of headphones, it would be a miserable flight for him and anyone seated near them. I would guess. So she drove to the store to buy a pair. When the boy said he didn't want to come in with her, she made the kind of split second decision all parents will have to make a thousand times before their kids leave the nest. What makes the most sense for my family right here, right now? She decided to let him wait in the car, playing on an iPad with the windows cracked open on a mild day. Unfortunately for Brooks, a bystander saw and videotaped her heinous five minute crime. Uh, The cops were already calling her when she got back to Chicago, and she was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Brooks relates this tale in Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear, the latest addition to a growing canon of work, raising the alarm about how easy it is these days for parents to find themselves in serious trouble for having done something statistically safe but socially frowned upon. Another great book in this genre, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Hatts, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, is accepted starting on page 62 of this issue. Usually that means they had a t- temerity to take their eyes off their kids for more than a few seconds. I'm talking about moms like Daniel Medev investigated for letting her children 6 and 10 walk home from the park together, or Deborah Harrell, held in jail overnight for letting her 9-year-old play in the sprinkler while she worked her shift at a nearby McDonald's, or Natasha Felix, placed on the child abuse registry. Yes, there's one in every state, for letting her kids, eleven, nine, and five at the time, frolic at the playground across the street without her. All these countless all these and countless more examples show how we have criminalized parents who, by choice or necessity, give their kids some unsupervised time. Books called me shortly after her arrest and asked if I wanted to hear what had just happened. No, I interrupted. Let me tell you what just happened. And I rattle off a typical scenario remarkably similar to the one she was about to divulge. Uh, Brooks, hardly a shrink the government conservative, was shocked to hear how commonplace such experiences are. She was appalled to discover the vast power the state holds over us, including the authority to take away our kids if we refuse to act like crazed helicopter parents. And she was mad that these laws even turned working moms into housewives who must be on constant chaperone duty. You don't have to be a hardcore libertarian to share the intuition that is bad news when the government is telling you how to raise your children. This new normal doesn't place an unfair and unreasonable burden on parents. With almost no opportunities to play, explore, goof up, get lost, solve problems, and or resolve arguments on their own because there's always an adult hovering, children themselves end up socially and emotionally stunted. We need to support parents, teachers, and kids who are willing to go a bit outside of their comfort zone. We'd all be better off and if a little more childhood independence became acceptable, perhaps even respectable again, because in the end, this is not just about kids, but about the adults they will become. Feisty kids grow up to be feisty adults, the kind who are willing to fight for their freedom, even in a world that tells that any liberty is worth sacrificing for the safety of our precious children. I bring up parenting stories a lot on this show, mostly because I can reflect on my childhood and how, messed up it's gotten for recent kids of the day. Um, but also as, you know, I'm going to say an absentee parent at this point, cause my son doesn't live with me. Um, but I'm sure if he did, like I would not be that helicopter type parent. Like I don't have it in me to treat him like that, right? Like I'm, I'm a pretty laid back guy when it comes to, you know, what kids are allowed to do. And I, and, you know, if, if, and when I start a new family, I think I'm going to be okay, you know, letting them roam, right? I mean, letting them kind of do their own thing within reason, right? You know, like I've, I, I talked to other people who have kids and I always seem like they're way too overbearing and, and way too restrictive of what their kids are allowed to do. And I go, well, that's silly. Cause how are they going to learn? right how how are they going to how are they going to learn like life lessons and natural consequences uh if you're always there you know helicopter parenting i guess for lack of a better term i go like i don't want i i wouldn't want to stunt my kids like that um which is why when i do get to see my son like i don't i just whatever you want whatever you want to do type of a thing um again within reason because i have a coworker uh, he's talking to me about his kids and how, you know, with, with his, uh, two kids and, um, two step kids, you know, everything has to be like fair and equal among them. And I go, well, no, it doesn't. Why does that have to be, you know, like it doesn't have to be, that's like you choose it to be for your own personal reasons, but you can't blame the kids for that. Um, and like when I do hang out with my son, like he knows, like it's, it's when we go out or do certain things that's, it's my money right i'm i'm spending it because i choose to spend it on him if at any point um i think he's you know taking advantage or or not you know valuing it enough um i stop spending it and i go oh I'm sorry you know like i'm not i don't feel like you're appreciative enough um or showing enough gratitude you know for for my expenditures then I just, I just stop. I go, right, no, not, not today. Like I'm okay. I'm okay saying no when it comes to my stuff. Right now, if the answer is like, you know, and the other thing that I tell him is like, well, the answer, the answer is not no, it should be how. So I go, well, if you want it, you know, if, if you want this beyond me spending the money on it, how are you going to get the money? What are you going to do to earn? You know, do you want to do, do you want to do some chores around the house? Cause that's definitely, I, I would definitely pay someone to do some of that stuff. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I don't think the adult responsibilities have to be held back until adulthood when it comes to kids, right? Like, you can go out and play. You can go ride a bike. You can go play in the park. It's okay. I don't have to be at the park the entire time monitoring your every move um, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that doing so inhibits the amount of exploration a child will do. Right. Like just just like, you know, adults who feel like being they're they're being monitored, um, their behavior changes, you know, and I I want children in general to have like free expression and free reign uh, to explore the world without feeling like they're being monitored or watched or judged, you know, or anything like that. And so when I see stories like this come up, I go, well, this 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 has to get out there. You have to you have to know that you know, monitoring a child's every move is completely unacceptable, you know, and and again, I get the safety thing. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to my kids. So I gotta, I gotta protect them. Um, sure. You know, if, if you feel that way, um, but also know that in protecting them that much to that degree, uh, you're doing more damage in the future because, you know, the, the first thought that popped in mind and, you know, Call me biased, right? But it it turns them into a bunch of snowflakes um, that can't process adult conversations or talk about adult things, and then you get like you know the screeching from college students who need safe places because oh my god they're finally uh, in in a controlled environment, right? That gives them a little bit more freedom than they've had in the past, and yet already it's too much for them. And for the for the rest of us, when when those people vote. Or get put in charge, or you know, you know, clamor for the government to, to protect them even more. Well, then that comes down on all of us. You know, the the people that just want to be free, that want to you know live and let live, that want to roam about the planet um, and share in all the vast offerings that it has. Uh, we get stunted too, and through, through no fault of our own. It's usually from you know do gooder, state worshipping individual who just can't mind their own damn business uh, and let you be. I think I've said enough on that. Moving on. How government became the chief violator of property rights. Uh, Governmental violations of personal property rights derive much from the resentment, anger, and division we witness in America today. In 1925, President Calvin Coolidge famously said that the chief business of the American people is business. Today, however, this could be reworded as the business of the American people is redistribution, and government redistribution of income and wealth, violations of personal property rights, is tearing apart the social fabric of the country. The tipping point. Today, more than half of the Americans receive more money from government transfer programs than they pay in federal taxes. When a a majority of people benefit on net from government transfers and its growth, a tipping point is reached where pulling back is increasingly difficult, if not politically impossible. Uh, The figures below show transfers and federal taxes by household across income quintiles. Uh, The lower three quintiles receive far more in government transfers than they pay in taxes. Only the top two quintiles pay more in taxes than they receive in transfers, effectively subsidizing the bottom groups. Um, and the chart is in the article, uh, so you know where to find it, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash anarchist experience, and then click through the links there. Uh, so we'll go look at it. Reduced incentive to work. This pattern is no accident. Rather, it is a deliberate strategy by those favoring larger, more powerful government. The goal is to make Americans increasingly reliant on government transfers and less sufficient with a large and growing segment of the population who vote for a living and a shrinking segment who work for a living. Much of the division in America today reflects this redistributive dynamic. Hidden within the lower three quintiles is another important dynamic uncovered by John F. Early. After adjusting for transfers and taxes, there is an astonishing degree of equality among the bottom 60% of Americans in spendable income. As noted by Phil Graham and Robert B. Eckland, Jr. in the Wall Street Journal, Hard-working, middle-income and lower-middle-income families must have recognized that their efforts left them little better off than the growing number of recipients of government transfers. It is easy to see how the middle-income husband and wife who both work could resent that people who don't work are about as well-off as they are. Over time, the unfairness leads Americans to view political investments, campaigns, voting, lobbying, crony capitalism, rent-seeking in general, as increasingly attractive compared to investing in themselves through education and on-the-job training or investing in their businesses through new plant, equipment, and R&D. At the individual level, a transfer mentality creates welfare dependency and weakens entrepreneurial initiative. In 1935, President Franklin Roosevelt foreshadowed the dependency problem associated with welfare transfers. Continued dependence upon relief induces a spirit and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive to the national fiber. To dole out relief in this way is to administer a narcotic, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. Indeed, since the dot-com bust of 2001, transfer income has increased relative to market income in every quintile. Governments at all levels, through redistribution programs, have become the chief violator of personal property rights in America taking income and wealth from one person and handing it to another while destroying the human spirit and social cohesion along the way. James Madison wrote in 1792, It is not just the government where the property which a man has in his personal safety and personal liberty is violated by arbitrary seizures of one class of citizens for the service of the rest. By Madison's definition, government at all levels in the United States are unjust, governmental violations of personal property rights drive much of the resentment anger and division we witness in America today now end of the article I don't have much to add to this article aside from the fact that um, I don't want it to sound like it's only people uh, on welfare who are the problem um, it kind of glossed over the other redistributive programs um, like the crony capitalism so it's not just the poor uh, the, that are tearing the fiber of the the you know the the country apart. Um, but it's at all levels of the government where any handout is given period. Um, you know, they, they, they can't protect what they don't, um, steal first or they can't give out what they don't steal first. So it's just, you know, at all levels, state tax, federal tax, local tax at any place where the government has their mud little hands, um, getting involved in the business of the people. Um, you can be assured that someone is gaining at the expense of another It's, it's the ultimate, uh, win, lose, or even lose, lose type of system. Um, whereas, you know, free markets, voluntary association is, uh, a win, win endeavor that we should all strive to get behind. Um, we just, it's, it's prohibitively difficult to do so, um, when this third party is meddling in the business of everybody else and it forces that whole, uh, poor, rich, poor paradigm, um, that prevents us from uniting, uh, against the state. So I don't want, I don't want to sound like this is just, a uh, anti-welfare, um, article or show or position. Um, even though I am anti-welfare, I just, I'm anti-welfare at all levels, right? No, no theft, no handouts is, is kind of like the, the gist, uh, that I'd like to get across there. So that's being said, moving on. Julian Assange deserves a Medal of Freedom, not a secret indictment. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been secretly indicted by the Trump administration's Justice Department, a drastic escalation of the Fed's efforts against him, the New York Times reported. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has denounced WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence service and labeled Assange a fraud, coward, and enemy. But rather than a federal indictment, Assange deserves a tweaked version of one of Washington's hottest honorifics. Uh, WikiLeaks has been in the federal crosshairs since it released scores of thousands of documents exposing lies and atrocities regarding the Afghan and Iraq wars, thanks to leaks from Army Corporal Bradley, now Chelsea Manning. During the 2016 presidential campaign, WikiLeaks released emails from the Democratic National Committee showing that its nominating process was rigged to favor Hillary Clinton. Uh, during the final months of the campaign, Wikileaks disclosed emails from Clinton's campaign chief John Podesta. Trump loved Wikileaks when it was convenient in the final months of the presidential campaign Donald Trump, Donald Trump declared, "I love Wikileaks," and mentioned it more than a hundred times. However, uh, since Trump took office, he is following Washington protocols and viewing whistleblowing as public enemies uh, whistleblowers as public enemies. The Assange indictment is far more than threatening the Trump tweets snarling at CNN. The ACLU warns that prosecuting Assange for WikiLeaks' publishing operations would be unconstitutional and set a dangerous precedent for U.S. journalists who routinely violate foreign secrecy laws to deliver information vital to the public interest. Trevor Tim of the Freedom of the Press Foundation declared... Any charges brought against WikiLeaks for their publishing activities pose a profound and incredibly dangerous threat to press freedom. It is difficult to appreciate WikiLeaks without recognizing how federal secrecy has become far more pervasive and dangerous since 9-11. If someone had massively leaked U.S. government documents on Iraq in January 2003, the Bush administration campaign for war might have been thwarted. The federal government made almost 50 million decisions to classify information last year. Uh, Politicians and federal agencies have long recognized that what people don't know won't hurt the government. Truth will out is the biggest fairy tale in Washington's U.S. troops are now fighting in 14 foreign nations. Will the Pentagon tell us all about it? The National Security Agency illegally tracked every citizen's phone call. No federal officials disclosed the system that a federal judge castigated as an almost Orwellian surveillance scheme. And what are the betting odds on of Americans seeing the dirt on the U.S. government's long-term collusion with the Saudi regime, despite its atrocities at home and abroad? On the same day that a, the Assange indictment scored headlines, Trump awarded seven Presidential Medals of Freedom. No controversy greeted posthumous awards to Babe Ruth and Elvis Presley, Unlike the ruckus regarding Miriam Adelson, wife of Republican super donor Sheldon Adelson. Public citizen, a liberal nonprofit, howled that the Adelson Award is just the latest sign of Trump's ability to corrupt and corrode all aspects of the government. Uh, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman caterwauled that it was ludicrous and an insult to the people who received the medal for genuine service. Update the Freedom Awards to kill cover-ups. In reality, uh, presidential medals of freedom have routinely been exploited to buttress the political establishment with bevies of awards for political operators, members of Congress, and pliable foreign leaders. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson distributed bushels of medals of freedom to his Vietnam War architects and enablers, perhaps as consolation prizes for losing the war. The medal awarded to Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, who lies about the war-making progress, cost thousands of American and Vietnamese lives, fetched $40,625 at auction a few years ago. President George W. Bush conferred medals of freedom on his Iraq war team, including CIA Chief George Slam Dunk Tenet, Iraq Viceroy Paul Bremer, and Ambassador Ryan Crocker, whom Bush called America's Lawrence of Arabia. Some of the biggest fabulous of the modern era, including Henry Kissinger and Dick Cheney, also pocketed the award. The controversies over Assange and Adelson provide a serendipitous opportunity to update the Freedom Awards. Because few things are more perilous to democracy than permitting politicians to cover up crimes, there should be a new Medal of Freedom category commending individuals who have done the most to expose official lies. This particular award could be differentiated by including a little steam whistle atop the medal, vivifying how leaks can prevent a political system from overheating or exploding. Assange would deserve such a medal, as would Thomas Drake and Edward Snowden, who reveals NSA's abuses, John Kiriakou, who revealed CIA torture, and Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers. Admittedly, there may be no way to stop presidents from giving steam-whistle Freedom Awards to political donors' wives. Organizations like WikiLeaks are among the best hope for rescuing democracy from Leviathan. Unless we presume politicians have a divine right to deceive the governed, Americans should honor individuals who expose federal crime. Whistleblowers should be especially welcomed by anyone riled up over Trump's lies. End of the article. Uh, once again, not much to add aside from the fact that WikiLeaks is one of the few uh, actually journalistic organizations out there. Uh, the the you know the, the rest is just public relations. Um, there's that, the video floating around the internets uh, where news news anchors from around the country uh, read the exact same news report basically verbatim uh, from each other showing just how little there is in in journalists being journalists and how they just you know tow the party in the public line of, of what they're told to say uh, and then you have outlets like WikiLeaks um, would again one of the few where they actually dig and expose and uncover the real story. Um, and then, you know, like the article suggests, rather than being praised for their journalistic enterprises, um, they're shunned and, and put down and, and targeted uh, by the government, you know, for for basically doing the job of the press, right? You know, if, if you believe in the state and you believe in that sort of thing, and then the, the press is like the last line of civilian defense in holding the government accountable to what they do, uh, and now with, you know, uh, journalists being targeted, uh, like the article said, it's a chilling effect where rather than become a target of the state, you just, you know, toe the line to, to get by and, and take your payoffs as they come. Right. there, There's no there's no integrity left in journalism, uh, mainstream or otherwise, because every outlet has a bias. Um, one of the one of the things about WikiLeaks is. Although the bias is recognizable, at least the facts are all there, right? You know, they, they, they release the documents, um, with basically without commentary. Um, the, the only bias is like how they release it, when they release it, you know, and, and who they release it to. Um, you know, you, you can, you can filter that, you can filter through that, but the actual documents themselves are usually, you know, the, the unfiltered, uh, facts of the matter that, you know, as, as an intelligent member of the public, uh, you can access read through and decide for yourself what's really going on. Moving on. All right. We're only halfway through, but I'm tired. Uh, So I'm going to, we're going to blast through these last few articles um, without commentary. And if the show goes short, the show goes short because like I said, just, it's been a, it's been a rough few days not having a, Co-partner in crime is starting to wear on me for the day. So here we go. Philly Police Union sues over attempts to keep bad cops off the stand. Do police officers have a right to testify about their investigations in criminal court cases? That weird idea seems to serve the foundation of a lawsuit by Philadelphia's police union against the city's mayor, police commissioner, and district attorney. Philadelphia's Fraternal Order of the Police, Lodge 5, is suing because District Attorney Larry Krasner has a list of cops with bad records, and his office uses this list to determine whether those cops can be called to the stand to testify in cases. The reason for the database's existence is eminently logical. If prosecutors use testimony from police officers with a documented history of misconduct, the defense can bring that up and use it to cast doubt on an officer's integrity and testimony, and see doubt in the jurors' minds. In short, part of the purpose of the list is to keep cops off the stand that could potentially wreck the prosecution's case and also to alert prosecutors in advance about these potential problems. But the police union doesn't see it that way. They are filing suit because there's no due process system where the police officers involved can challenge being put into the database in the first place. As a result, this impacts their jobs and they have no recourse in the matter. The lawsuit argues, for such police officers, critical parts of the work performed by police officers are restricted, resulting in the lost wages, damage to reputation, and professional harm to those police officers. This lawsuit may seem baffling at first. Why would the police union demand that officers have some sort of right to testify in criminal cases if their testimony actually has the possibility of backfiring and clearing the defendant? Why is the police union trying to screw up these cases? The Philadelphia Inquirer Provides the most logical explanation. It's the money. In just seven months in 2018, Philadelphia police officers earned a whopping $12 million in overtime at the courthouse, testifying in cases. Philadelphia's police union isn't alone in this latest pursuit. The inquirer notes that the union for Pennsylvania State Troopers is suing the district attorney's office in Chester County for the same reason. That district attorney, Thomas Hogan, responded that it is within its own discretion to maintain such a list. On the other side of the country, in Los Angeles, the union representing sheriff deputies took it a step further and used the court to stop Los Angeles County Sheriff Department leaders from even passing the names of deputies and detectives with misconduct records along to prosecutors. Fortunately, California has changed its laws and opened up disciplinary records in cases where officers have gotten into trouble for lying, so it's going to be harder to keep that information under wraps. It's worth noting here that there are only 66 officers on the list being kept by Krasner in Philadelphia, though he is actively looking for more who need to be added. And of them, he'd still allow 37 to testify, but prosecutors had to inform defense attorneys about their past. Philadelphia's police union represents 6,500 officers. If anything, Krasner's tiny list is actually supporting the union's claim that it's just a handful of bad apples in law enforcement who are the problem. And yet the union is still suing the city for trying to keep these apples from spoiling their court cases. End of the article. Like I said, moving on. Uh, Passengers, oh, I might comment on this. Passengers are forced to chip in to pay for repairs to their Boeing 787 before it takes off from Beijing to Poland. Uh, Passengers on board a flight from Beijing to Poland were asked to refund, or were asked to fund the repairs on a fault so that the plane could take off. There were around 250 passengers on the LOT Polish Airlines flight when a Boeing 787 Dreamliner suffered a hydraulic pump fault, according to local media. They were asked to foot the bill after the mechanic, who had been employed to fix the pump, demanded that he would only take cash as payment. Uh, The leak was first noticed by crew members during after-flight checks when it landed at Beijing Capital International Airport on November 11th. It was due to fly back to warsaw Chopin Airport the next day. However, passengers were reportedly asked to pay for a replacement pump before it kicked it off the ground. LOT Polish Airlines spokesman Adrian Kubicki said an employee at the Boeing warehouse in Beijing refused to accept the bank transfer and insisted on cash. He claimed that crew, the crew from the flight managed to scrape together around uh, 2,500 RMB. Uh, from passengers on the plane for repairs, which are believed to have taken around 10 hours. Kabiki added, there is no circumstance that justifies asking money from passengers. Uh, Daniel Golobyowski, who was one of the passengers in flight, said, he asked several people he took 400 RMB from just us. Uh, the outraged passenger added, we are at the international airport. I cannot believe that transactions take place here in cash under the table with the mechanic standing next to the plane. Incredible. Uh, After the plane landed in Warsaw, Kubicki told outraged passengers, I know that you encountered an unusual situation today, for which I would like to apologize and from the bottom of my heart. Believe it or not, uh, but there was a situation with the warehouse employee in Beijing who refused all methods of payment other than cash, which led to the confusion. Nevertheless, I am grateful for him and the flight returned safely to Warsaw. According to local media, the borrowed money was immediately returned to the passengers once they landed in Warsaw, along with flight vouchers. Passengers were able to claim 600 euro in compensation for the lengthy delay. According to the LOT spokesman, uh, disciplinary measures will be taken against employees who collect the cash from passengers. I wanted to comment on this one because upon first reading, uh, I didn't see anything outrageous or wrong about what had happened, right? You have a, you know, for, and, and wrong might be a strong word, like in poor taste, maybe a bad long-term decision, quite possibly, uh, but ethically wrong or morally wrong. Uh, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't get any of that, you know, from the article, right? You have a, you have a plane with a malfunction and you have a mechanic, And the mechanic negotiates to be paid in cash. Now, the airline doesn't have to hire that mechanic, right? That mechanic doesn't have to provide the service, right? But the airline hires that mechanic, agrees to the terms to pay him in cash for, you know, for whatever reason, um, and then needs to like to fund the money. And then you have the passengers, right? Who obviously have a long ordeal ahead of them. Right. You know, uh, number one, to wait for the plane to be repaired. And number two, the flight back to Poland from China. Um, and they're made aware that, you know, they, there's, there's a situation where the mechanic isn't going to fix the plane, which will leave them stranded longer. Um, uh, unless they come up with cash, uh, for the mechanic and they didn't steal the money from the passengers, you know, the, the passengers, um, voluntarily gave the money to fix the plane. And I'm sure, you know, if, if they were smart, they would have negotiated, you know, for, for it to be like a loan instead of here's just some extra money for the airline um, type of video. And if they didn't, so be it, right? You know, the, the mechanic needs cash. You, you either pony up or you don't. If you don't, um, you know, you save your money, but it's it, you, your wait's going to be longer. So still no problem there. Um, the The only problem that I had was when, you know, the when the, the airline employee... Um, later said that the entire situation was like unacceptable. And well, no, no, I, you know, f- for, for a heat of the moment decision, when the mechanics on the ground saying, I'm not going to fix this until I get paid in cash and you're the airline worker, like, do you have enough cash to pay him out of pocket to get reimbursed later? Probably not. You know, you, you it was it a bad decision. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, but again, not ethically wrong or moral in any way. You know, you go to the passengers, you get the money, you pay the man, he fixes the plane and off you go. And then the rest of it, you know, can be, can be settled in the course of time, right? How much did passengers donate? Well, you know, like I said, they they gave them vouchers, um, in the end anyway. So I think, you know, without the, without the vitriol, I guess, for again, lack of a better term, um, towards the employee who made the decision and like, you know, who will be reprimanded and and decreed for his actions um I, th- I i think this went as smoothly as you could possibly expect um from a from a fair and voluntary trade perspective right passengers paid to get the plane repaired mechanic fixed the plane airlines reimbursed the passengers after the fact uh, but they got home safe they got home as quickly as could be with the you know with the damaged plane uh with the damages being done to the plane um and that should have been the end of it it should have been like you know the the article should have been um, a heroic endeavor, you know, where passengers come together, uh, to to pay this you know mechanic his his fair price that he's charging to to get them on their way, uh, and the airline comes through and takes care of them after the fact, maybe paying them a bonus, right for for the ordeal in general, right? Which which was the payment plus the airline vouchers. So I don't know. I I looked at the article and thought this is this is a, like a great example of like on the spot negotiation. And how you value things differently at different points in time, like it highlights a time preference um, when it comes to money, right? Do you value your time, you know, more than the money, or do you value the money more than the time? Uh, for those passengers that paid uh, to 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 take off, they obviously value the time more than the money. Else there was no, there was no requirement, um, that they pay the mechanic. They weren't being forced to do it. They just said like, Hey, if we don't pay this guy, we're going to be here a bit longer. Cause then now you got to go find another mechanic to assess the situation, to do the repairs, so on and so forth, or find another plane, you know, God knows how long that's going to take. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I liked the article, um, as far as, you know, from, you know, from, from the mechanic's perspective, of getting paid, like if he's unsure of the wire transfers of, if, if it's been unscrupulous in the past, or it takes too long to post to his account because of delays in the banking system or whatever. And you just prefer to get paid in cash. Uh, and you have a highly specialized job when it comes to, you know, fixing airliners like this, then yeah, you know, get what you can and get it in cash. Why not? Um, uh, now will it prevent him from getting work in the future uh, by the airlines because of his, um, high demands? Maybe. Depends how much competition there is in, in his field as a mechanic, right? If he's, if he's like one of a few or one in a million or the only one, uh, out there who can do the repairs, well, then he can charge more and get paid in cash. And there's nothing anyone can do about it because that's now the value of his employee. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, that's, uh, I, I think I've said my piece on that good, good on, good on the mechanic, good on the guy who took the cash, good on the passengers who paid the cash. Good on the airlines for making good with the passengers after the fact, um, but bad on the airlines uh, for, um, you know, being a dick to the guy who you know made the on decision on the spot decision to to handle the transaction that way. Innocent grandma jailed for months because cop mistook cotton candy for meth. Uh, an innocent grandma, Dasha Fincher, was kidnapped by police and thrown in a cage for months, not because she did anything wrong, but be, because police couldn't tell the difference between cotton candy and meth now this innocent new grandma is going after the police who did this to her as well as the company who manufactures the dangerously inaccurate tests cop used to take her freedom Uh, this horror movie for fincher started back on new year's eve of 2016 a day this innocent mother and new grandmother says she'll never forget they found the cotton candy in the floorboard of the car said fincher uh, as the video shows, and you can watch the video in the article, uh, the bag that police claimed was meth was an obviously bag you, the bag police claimed was meth was an obvious bag used to hold cotton candy. It looked nothing like the Ziploc bags or other tiny bags meth is usually found in. It would be like a cocaine dealer selling coke from a purple royal crown bag or a purple crown royal bag. The cotton candy was blue as well, which is atypical because real meth is clear or white, and only drug dealers looking to be like Breaking Bad add blue tint to their product, which is highly uncommon. Still, however, this innocent grandma-to-be to was accused of trafficking a large quantity of blue meth in a cotton candy bag that looked like cotton candy. Uh, as Fincher noted, Deputy Cody Maples and Deputy Kevin Williams asked her what was in the bag. When she told them it was cotton candy, they did not believe her. According to the incident report, these expert drug recognition officers claimed that based on the packaging and crystal-like features, Corporal Williams tested the substance. Uh, the officers then used a highly faulty field test kits, which have been known to produce false positives repeatedly. Uh, predictably, the cotton candy falsely tested positive for drugs. Uh, Fincher then became one of the many women and men to suffer horrific fates at the hands of negligent cops and their continued use of faulty field drug test kits. In fact, tens of thousands have been convicted and served time, even earning the black mark of a felony for crimes they likely didn't commit, according to a report, because the cases against them relied on horribly unreliable field drug test kits. So prone to error are the tests, courts won't allow their submission as evidence. However, their continued use by law enforcement, coupled with a 90% rate at which drug cases are resolved through equally dubious plea deals, needlessly ruin thousands of lives. Dana Fincher is one of these people. As WAMZ reports, this innocent grandma was put into jail for more than three months. Fincher says a judge set her bond at $1 million. In March in March 22, 2017, GBI lab tests came back and said there were no controlled substance confirmed in the sample. Uh, while in jail, Fincher's daughter miscarried a baby and could not be comforted by her mother. Also, Fincher missed the birth of her twin grandsons. Uh, my daughter had a miscarriage. I wasn't there for that. My twin grandsons were born. I missed that, said Fincher. I want Monroe County to pay for what they did to me, said Fincher. However, if history is indicator, the only people to pay for locking up an innocent grandma for cotton candy will be taxpayers, as discussed in the first article we talked about. Uh, Moving on. Sadly, Fincher's story is extremely common and happens every day throughout the U.S. The standard $2 drug field test manufactured by the Sephirothan group has been proven to be unreliable and, according to the manufacturer, should not be used as a standalone test for convictions related to drug possession. Studies have shown how everyday foods, spices, and medicines tested positive in field drug tests. In one experiment, scientists even discovered that air could set off false positives for these tests. According to Forensic Resources, the director of the lab recognized by the International Association of Chiefs of Police for Forensic Science Excellence has called field drug testing kits totally useless due to the possibility of false positives. In laboratory experiments, at least two brands of field test kits have been shown to produce false positives in tests of mucinex, chocolate, aspirin, chocolate, and oregano. I don't know why chocolate's in there twice. Uh, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, a PhD, chemist, former FBI lab supervisor, has also voiced objections, saying that he has no confidence at all in those test kits. According to the National Litigation and Public Policy Organization, the Innocence Project, At any given time, there are an estimated 40,000 to 100,000 innocent people currently locked in cages in U.S. prisons. Over the years, the Free Thought Project has reported on countless stories of odd things creating false positives in field drug tests. We have seen people put behind bars for possession of things like drywall, glazed donuts, crackers, kitty litter, and baking soda. Now, we can add cotton candy to that list. End of the article. Woo, moving on. Healthcare Ate America. Uh, in 1960, six years before the start of Medicare and Medicaid, America spent about $27 billion on healthcare. Uh, that figure represented just under 5% of an economy that was about $543 billion in total. Uh, by 2016, combined public and private spending on healthcare has reached more than $3.3 trillion, or nearly 18% of the total economy, with almost half of the bill paid by the government. Now, thanks to factors such as increased drug prices and an aging population, official projections have health care spending increasing indefinitely. In the five decades after the passage of America's two largest health care entitlements, that sector has become a maw, eating everything in its path. Uh, health spending has reshaped the nation's job market, its household finances, and its public budgeting. Between January 2007 and November 2017, nearly a third of all jobs created in the United States were healthcare jobs. On average, American households spend 22% of their income on healthcare, up from 10% in the 70s. Large employers spend an average of more than $14,000 per employee on health insurance and the like each year. Medicaid, which is jointly administered and financed by the state and federal governments, is one of the largest line items in every state budget. Uh, healthcare entitlements are the biggest drivers of the long term federal debt and a fixture of America's most consequential public policy debates. Medicare and Medicaid were themselves outgrowths of the failed single payer campaign of the 40s and 50s. Nearly every decade since they came into being has been marked by battles over healthcare policy and politics. In the 1970s, Senator Ted Kennedy proposed a single-payer plan that was scuttled after the newly created Congressional Budget Office estimated it would cost far more than Kennedy's staff had said. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan presided over a series of changes to Medicare's payment system in an effort to tamp down on cost. In the 90s, one of Bill Clinton's first major initiatives was a failed attempt to pass a disruptive universal coverage law. A decade later, George W. Bush would oversee the passage of Medicare's prescription drug benefit, his administration's most visible and priciest domestic policy achievement. A Barack Obama presidency was defined in large part by the efforts to pass and implement the Affordable Care Act, the health care law that would become known as Obamacare. Even with Democratic majorities in both House and the Senate, drafting and voting on the legislation consumed the first year of his presidency. Once passed, it was beset by legal and practical challenges. Over the course of Obama's two terms, Republicans swept house and voted on dozens of symbolic repeal bills, promising to replace the law at the first opportunity. For almost a decade, eliminating Obamacare was the GOP's biggest domestic policy priority. Uh, The opportunity arrived after the 2016 election, which resulted in Republicans controlling both chambers of Congress as well as the White House. But just as the effort to pass Obamacare dragged on longer than anticipated, so did the GOP's repeal push. In the end, it failed by a slim margin, with holdout lawmakers worried that no suitable replacement had been drawn up. President Donald Trump and congressional Republicans settled for tweaking the law at the margins. stopping payment of insurer subsidies that were never authorized by Congress, zeroing out the individual mandate penalty, slashing funds set aside to promote new online marketplaces, and pushing to add work requirements to the law's Medicaid expansion. Democrats, meanwhile, spent the better part of 2018 campaigning on health care issues from the preservation of Obamacare's pre-existing conditions regulations to further expansion on Medicaid. Nearly all of the party's rising stars have endorsed a single-payer option and Republicans have begun to respond somewhat nonsensically by defending traditional Medicare, a program that socializes the financial the financing of healthcare from what they have called the threat of socialism. Even Obama, who as president rejected a single-payer option said in September 2018 speech that Medicare for all was a good new idea. It is neither but it's returned to the forefront of American public policy debate and perhaps inevitable given the increasingly expensive and expansive role of healthcare in American life. Since the federal government's first major forays into healthcare financing in the 1960s, that sector has consumed the economy, the workforce and both household and government budgets. It is no surprise that it has taken overtaken American politics as well. Um, end of the article. The only thing I can really add to that is, um, Once again, you know, being being new to jobs, um, looking for you know, considering uh healthcare as a perk of the job, um, and then trying to trying to manage that as well because it's to the point where even when it's offered to me, it is at such a great personal expense because it's not fully covered, um, that I may not take it, you know, it's, it's an option being weighed on whether or not I want, you know, an extra 500 bucks, uh, taken out of my paycheck to, to cover, uh, insurance, just insurance. Like, you know, I haven't, I haven't done the pricing around yet. Um, but it's ridiculous how expensive it's gotten. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, if they're spending $14,000 on me per employee, as the, as the article said on average, right. I can't imagine spending that kind of money on healthcare throughout the year. Like it's just, it's, 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 it's an obscene number. Uh, as far as, you know, what, what an individual would have to budget for that. Moving on last article, then I'm out. Uh, Canada's marijuana legislation is tainted by big government's grasp on sales. Canada recently became the second country in the world to fully legalize the consumption and sale of recreational cannabis. Though a victory for personal freedom, Canada's legislation is also a good example of how government can bulge, can bungle even the most basic tasks. Legalish weed. Uh, legalization came on October 17th, three years after Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party was elected on a platform that promised full cannabis legalization. Parliament passed the formal legalization bill in June, but the model of distribution and sales has been left up to Canadian provinces. The majority of provinces have opted for a marijuana sales model that includes private retail and government-controlled online sales. Other provinces, such as Quebec and the Maritime Provinces, has opted for full government control over both online and retail sales. No province currently has a fully private cannabis distribution model. Legalization has not taken place overnight, but there are concerns about the preparedness of Canada's police to deal with these changes. The bill Parliament passed in June introduced three new weed-related offenses with differing levels of severity depending on the level of the user's psychoactive impairment. Their correlating punishment ranged from $1,000 fines to prison sentences of up to 10 years, but to convict someone of drug-impaired driving, these offenses all require a positive blood test. Police departments across the country have warned they are still not ready to perform these duties, Police will now have access to roadside saliva tests that can be used to determine whether there is a reasonable grounds to ask for the blood sample. But these saliva tests don't work in cold temperatures and often produce false results. The blood samples, too, must also be collected by nurses on staff with police forces or in hospitals. But officials have already admitted that several police forces, including Canada's federal police agency, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, still aren't set up adequately to handle samples. Uh, Meanwhile, the number of blood samples tested is expected to increase from uh, 550 to 6,400 by 2022. And the number of samples builds up. This will create a massive backlog in the legal cases against impaired drivers, clogging up the criminal justice system. Still not competitive with the black market. Part of the liberal argument for legalization in 2015 was that legalization would keep the profits out of the hands of criminals. Uh, But this only works if the price of legal cannabis is comparable to the black market price. According to Statistics Canada, the government's official statistical agency, the average price of black market cannabis in the country was around $6.83 a gram. Uh, Though prices will vary depending on the province and change as more producers enter the market, uh, Canada's finance minister estimated last year that legal cannabis would cost about $10 a gram. Uh, Taxation is a major reason for this. The federal government is imposing an excise tax on most cannabis products, adding $1 per gram or 10% of the final retail price, which is higher, whichever is higher. Consumers will also have to pay sales tax between 13 and 15%. Since legalization, prices have varied between $5.87 and $17.50 per gram. But in many legal dispensaries, prices are half the cost of what is offered in government stores. While competition in the new legal cannabis market should drive down prices, Canadians will still be paying more for legal cannabis than for the black market variety. For now, legalization is unlikely to completely remove the criminal element from the cannabis market. Crowding out the black market is also dependent on legal cannabis being available. But since legalization, there have been severe shortages. This isn't a supply issue. It's a licensing one. The regulatory body responsible for cannabis licensing Health Canada has licensed 132 producers nationwide, but only 78 currently have sales licenses. This has led to severe shortages. Quebec is closing its stores Monday through Wednesday each week until supply is stabilized. Sloppy implementation. In Ontario, a pulso strike is further disrupting cannabis orders from the online store, which is currently the only way to buy legal cannabis. In addition, the sale of three popular cannabis products, edibles, beverages, and cannabis products for vaping, will remain illegal until the government has additional regulations in place. Uh, Federal regulations all require plain packaging for cannabis, restricting the ability of producers to market their products. This will curb the ability of legal producers to build brand loyalty through aesthetic recognition and slow the rates at which consumers transition from illegal to legal products. Uh, Canadian cannabis legalization is a welcome decision, but it isn't flawless. Canada's rollout is full of problems, and other countries should learn an important lesson from this messy example. For the new legal market to meet consumer demand and eradicate the criminal connection associated with the illegal market, it's important that legalization doesn't create a tightly controlled and highly regulated environment that turns the government into the only official pot dealer in town. Uh, End of the article and end of the show. Woo, I made it. Uh, you know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, facebook.com slash anarchistexperience, show prep in the groups, facebook.com slash groups slash anarchistexperience, uh, minds, minds.com slash experience twitter, twitter.com slash theanarchistexp, and if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, uh, we do that through Patreon still, I don't know why, uh, patreon.com slash theanarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. I hope. Peace.